Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. Hello. Ashley's clearly here. Again. Yes. We have recorded. This is episode four. We have recorded. In the space of not quite 24 hours yet. Nope. We're still like around 12. Or no, we're almost at 24. Almost. Yeah. Like 21. We've had some adventures. It's been a, it's been a fun time. Yeah, actually. It's been real. It's been mm-hmm. fun. It's been real fun. <laughs> we discovered crazy hot Asian or crazy rich Asians. <laughs> I mean, they are crazy hot. I mean, also, yes. Is on HBO now, so that's how we started our morning. Check that out. <laughs> uh, first, I would like to welcome our new Patreon, both at... Let's do this. I always forget the levels. <laughs> at the convert level. So we have two new converts. Hello. Welcome. We have Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Thank you. And then we have Boobies and Newbies. Hello, I love your podcast. <laughs> it's taking the... The dick out of the box of robot romance novels, <laughs> and I love it. I'm here for it. All day, every day. Yeah. Probably shouldn't listen to that at work. Maybe not. Still do. Of course. <laughs> I used to listen to My Favorite Murder when I worked at Sinclair in the campus ministry office. So. I love that. You also yeah. used to watch plane crash videos. <sighs> yeah, kind of a lot. My boss thought it was funny, so it was fine. <laughs> so, Ashley. Courtney. Are you ready to hear about how London got destroyed? Yes. Which time? There's been quite a few. Do you want to guess? Um, the fire, not the not the blitz. Correct. Boom. You could also say the plague. Well, well yeah, but that was a little bit far back. That would be my second guess. Though. That was 1400s. Yeah. AKA 15th century. Math. Yeah. <laughs> so, London. Who doesn't love it? People from the north. <laughs> Good point. By eight, uh, 16, went to the 1800s. Math is hard. I'm number lexic, and we all know it. Mm-hmm. Me too. It's fine. By sixteen, the 1660s, London was the largest city in Britain with an estimated half a million inhabitants. However, due to the Great Plague of London, the previous winter, the population was lower. So there's less people because there was a lot of dead people. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Not dead yet. Getting better. <laughs> I think I'll go for a walk now. <laughs> nope, you're dead. You just don't know it. So... Contrasting London to Paris, uh, John Everett <laughs> called it, quote, wooden, northern, and inartificial congestion of houses, end quote, and expressed the alarm about fire hazards possessed by the wooden congestion. That seems fair. It's an organic city with unregulated urban sprawl. So the different be- difference between a planned city. So like New York City is a planned city. So it's very- It's a grid system, motherfucker. Grid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you want to go? <laughs> Boston, however- not so much. It's a natural it's city. It's a hot mess. It's a natural city, so it just <laughs> gradually, like, people started, and they just kept... Lots of windy streets that go nowhere. Yes. hmm And I love it. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Terrified Veronica will beat me. That seems fair. You should probably be more worried about me, though. I'm within arm's distance. <laughs> I can take you. Um, That's true. Anyway. London originally was a Roman settlement for four centuries and had progressively become more crowded outside its defensive walls. And it pushed outwards. You have the extramural slums such as Shoreditch, Holborn, Southwark, and far enough to include the independent city of Westminster. So Westminster used to actually be farther down. Yeah. Hmm. When it was first settled. And that's why they would be like, oh, we're going to Westminster. And it was outside 
kind of like Dorchester. Used to be its own city, now it's just kind of like a neighborhood in Boston. Yes. Or like most of the areas of Cincinnati, which were separate villages, but Cincinnati's like, hey, there's a river to the south. Right. We can only go north. Over the Rhine. Mm -hmm. The Rhine was actually, in that context, was a road. I don't know anything about Cincinnati. Can you tell? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, by the time we get to the late 17th century, the city proper, the bounded bounded within the city walls and the River Thames, was only part of London, covering up to some 700 acres, so like a 1.1 square mile, and home to about 80,000 people, or one-sixth of the inhabitants. Wow. You also have the ring of inner suburbs where most, most Londoners live, which I think is still pretty true. Yeah. It's still the commercial heart of the capital, and is the largest... Uh, market import in England, dominated by trading and manufacturer classes. The city um, was shunned by the aristocracy who lived in the countryside outside the slum suburbs or in the exclusive Westminster district, aka the modern West End, and at the site of uh, Charles II's court at Whitehall. Because it was white. Creative. I know. Because, you know, they like to live at a convenient distance from the traffic log polluted unhealthy city, especially, you know... After it was hit by a devastating bubonic plague in 1665. That seems fair. On top of it, before we get even to the fire, the city of London had a tense relationship with the crown. And you're like, how does a city have a tense relationship with the crown? It's a city. Right. But remember, a city is made up of people. Well, the city of London has the mayor of London, and the, London has been very much its own stronghold for a long period of time. Also, at this point, cities represent, it's one of the few that isn't represented by, like, a duke or something right. like that. You have the Lord Mayor. Right. So, while the Lord Mayor changes, the politicians in that field don't really change that much. Right. So, uh, the city of London was a stronghold of republicanism during the Civil War, aka not a fan of the monarchy. Right. And for those of you who don't know about the English Civil War, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It is kind of the umpteenth one for that country, that area. But uh, this is the one where Charles I lost his head. And trying to place which Philippa Gregory novel that took place in. I don't know if she has one on this Civil War because there's no royalty. That might have been after her books. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, we have Cromwell. Oh, Cromwell. I think it's Thomas. The one that wasn't... The one that wasn't um, at the time of Anne Boleyn. No, that's the wrong Cromwell. Which Cromwell are you? Oliver. Oliver Cromwell. There's too many Cromwells. There's a lot of them. They're, they're very close together, too. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Um, so Oliver Cromwell takes over. He outlaws Christmas and dancing and fun things. So this is like... Okay, so if you read Twilight, this is about the time that Carlisle was turned. I hate myself for making that reference. Please move on. I, I don't know that reference. And I'm happy for you. So, and it's a lot of it is how Charles I was super Catholic and super Catholic things. Anyways. Relatable. He And spending. He loses his head. He's one of the only, I think, kings officially executed by parliament, too. Which is very good, considering other countries. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, it had been a threat to Charles II, and there had been several Republican uprisings in London in the early 1660s. So... Not great relationship. Less than ideal. Mm-hmm. The city's magistrates were of the generation that had fought in the Civil War and remember Charles the first grab for absolute power, a.k.a. he wanted to be, um... He didn't want parliament. <laughs> uh, so he wanted absolute power like the Sun King was doing in France. Like okay. Like doing yeah. divine right and all that. Like with Versailles. Mm-hmm. Okay. So really, the, the problem is... <sighs> okay. 
England, so it's Henri- Henriette's brother, that they send her to talk to in the show of Versailles. And he's bankrupt. Problem. Yeah. Okay. So basically, you have the Charles I wanted absolute power. He sees everyone else in Europe doing it. He's going to follow a trend. Does not work well. He loses his head. And because England has never been a fan of that kind of rule since uh, we have William the Conqueror in the 12th century. So I believe it's 1160. But don't quote me on that. Too late. I'm quoting you on it. (laughs) And so basically the city and parliaments determined to squatch that in his son. And when the great uh, fire comes through and threatens the city, they refuse the offers that Charles has made soldiers and other resources. So they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. Mm-hmm. Good call. Um, even though it was an emergency, it was so unpopular to have royal troops ordered into the city that basically there would have been rioting, looting, and people attacking the troops. So it's kind of fair because you have the antagonism, the political antagonism of the, in the people's idea of the crown mm-hmm. at this point. So to have royal, like, it'd be like having federal troops come into an area that is very anti-government and has had recent history of that. So, like Selma in the 1960s? Yes. And so, this is basically going to be great. So it's going to end really well. Charles would eventually take over control for when the fire's burning from the Lord Mayor, but it's not great mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. So, how do you fight fires in this period? Because there's no... You don't have fire hydrants. No. No fire department. There were more... Uh, rivers. There are three rivers in London. Mm-hmm. So you have the Thames um, and then two smaller ones that you no longer really see because they're underground. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were gross. Well, because not well, as gross as fire. Nope. I don't know. After the fire's done, it's less gross. There's that. So, fires were common in a crowded wood build, built city with its open fireplaces, candles, ovens, and stores of combustibles. <laughs> uh, there were no police or fire brigade to call, but you could call London's local militia, known as the trained bands, which were available for general emergencies in principle. and In theory. In theory. Watching for fire was one of the jobs of the watch and thousands of watchmen or bellmen who patrolled the streets at night. So there's like unofficial militias that do the job of police and firemen at this Mm -hmm. point. Police are actually a very new concept in world history. Right. I think it's in the Victorian period where we see a real rise. And police. And that's why we should really be glad as people who love true crime that we've developed as fast as we have. Right. Yeah. If we'd called 911 back then, it would not have been a two-minute response time because there would not have been 911 to call. There would not have been 911 to call. We'd have to go to the police station Which to report is, it. you know, a good 10-minute walk one way. Mm-hmm. Well, in my car, so. Well, yeah. Um, but you wouldn't have your car back then. That's true. We'd have to get a horse. <laughs> Self-reliant community procedures were in place for dealing with uh, fires, and they were usually effective because they had practice. Mm -hmm. Well, and they were unique to the community. Mm -hmm. And so the community would want to preserve, like, stop the fire because it's going to catch everyone's houses on fire and businesses. Right. uh, Public-spirited citizens would be alerted to a dangerous fire by muffled peals on the church bells and would be congregated to hastily fight the fire. The available methods relied on were demolition and water. So either tear it down or cover it in water. That makes sense. You don't really think of tearing it down now, but mm-hmm. it's a good way to smother the mm-hmm. embers. By law, a tower of every parish church had to hold equipment for these effect- like efforts. Long ladders, leather buckets, axes, fire hooks for pulling down biz- buildings quickly. Did they have blow pokes? I don't think they needed blow pokes. <laughs> that would make it worse. Um, 
Sometimes taller buildings would be leveled to the ground quickly and effectively by means of controlled gunpowder explosions. Hmm. So you fight fire with fire. Yeah. We kind of do a similar method now. They'll do fire breaks, which are just, they'll just clear the area of mm-hmm. any brush or anything there. So it'll... And Let then, it burn itself out? You want it to get far enough, like the, the break to be far enough that the fire can't cross it. So you're going to contain it by just having nothing that can burn. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So um, we got a wooden city. They, there's still remnants from the Civil War, which means they have arm armaments there, mm-hmm. which is great. Good call. Good cause, call. Because gunpowder and such. It's what you want when you're having a fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's an industrial city. So just imagine there's tanners, there's people doing um, metal works and so the chemicals they need mm-hmm. and all that. And then butchers and stuff, so the extra fats. and Right. Sunday morning. So they had two rainy summers in 1964 and 1965. London is under... An exceptional drought since November 1665, and the wooden buildings were tinder dry after a long hot summer in 1666. I just realized the end numbers are 666. <laughs> Do you think it's a coincidence? No. Nope. A fire broke out at Thomas Faring's ba- Bakery in Pudding Lane a little after midnight Sunday, August 2nd. In September, the family was trapped upstairs, but managed to climb from an upstairs window to the house next door, except for a maid servant who was too frightened to try and became the fire's first victim. Hmm. The neighbors tried to douse the fire, but after an hour, the parish constables arrived and judged that the adjoining houses better be demolished to prevent further spread. While the householders protested, the Lord Mayor Sir Thomas Bloodworth was summoned and alone had authority to override their wishes. When he arrived, the flames were consuming, consuming the adjoining I'm house. I'm sorry. Hold up. Pause. It is the devil's year and you decide to elect someone the last name Bloodworth. He was probably elected before. I don't care. You know that year's coming. Okay. Anyway, proceed. <laughs> Bloodworth. Yeah. The flames have already reached the adjoining houses, creeping towards the paper warehouse. Oh, no. And flammable stores on the riverfront. You doing okay? This is why you plan a city. But it's so old. You don't put a paper stop next to a bakery. Uh, so the more experienced firemen were clamoring to demolish houses and stuff around there to prevent it from spreading. But Bloodworth said, nope, because those premises were rented and the owners could not be found. Because <laughs> you got to ask them before you tear down their house and their stores. You think the fire is going to ask them? Yes. Does the fire? I need your permission to tear up your shit. Dear sir or madam, fire is coming in. Sign here. Thanks. Love yeah. fire. Yeah. It's a so, very polite fire. It's very polite. Um, Bloodworth is generally thought to have been appointed to the, to the office of Lord Mayor as a yes man rather than possessing requisites capable for the job. So he's just there to do what the council tells him and he's put in charge of a fire. Smart. He... Panicked when faced with a sudden emergency, and when pressed, made the off-quoted remark, quote, Psh, a woman could piss it out, end quote, and left. I mean, maybe don't be so glib about a big fire like that. I think he's panicking and doesn't know what... It wasn't that big initially, but it's starting to spread and get bigger. I mean, you're going to need at least three women for that. Mm-hmm. After the city had been, joyed, been destroyed, Samuel Pepys, who is... I mean, read his diary. It's fascinating. It wasn't... Like, the diary writing it back then was great because we don't know if he meant for it to come out. Right. But so they found it. Was, it like, more honest than might otherwise be at the time. Oh, sweet heavens, this diary. <laughs> it is juicy. Oh. So juicy. And I've read, like, most, I think all of it on the fire. And you're just like, say what now? Because <laughs> he's just wandering around. <laughs> 
Uh, so Samuel Pepys looked back on the events and wrote in his diary of the 7th of September, quote, people do all the... People do all the world cry over the simplicity, stupidity of the Lord Mayor in general, and more particularly in the business of the fire, laying it all upon him, end quote. <laughs> so everyone's like, it was you. It was this idiot's fault. Tar and featherhead. I like it. Peeps was a um, senior na- official in the Navy office then, which is a good position. He ascended to the Tower of London on Sunday morning to view the fire from a turret. Because, you know, privilege, as one does. He recorded in his diary that the Eastern Gale had turned it into conflagration. It had burned down several churches, he estimated 300 houses, and had reached the riverfront. The houses on the London Bridge were burning. Because, yes, bitches, they built houses on bridges. Yeah. You needed space? We have this bridge. <laughs> and you know what's great? Is that where the rhyme about London Bridges falling down comes from? Look at that. I think we're technically on our third or fourth London Bridge. Well, yeah. Not including Fergie's. <laughs> That's not about a bridge. <laughs> so, and also think about this. If there's not houses built on the bridge, it probably wouldn't have crossed the river. So it's going to cross. Like the, the fire wouldn't have crossed Yeah, the, the fire wouldn't okay. have crossed it, really. I mean, there was probably some wooden bridges, but you could probably. At first, <laughs> I thought you said the bridge wouldn't cross the river, and I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So then Peeps took a boat to inspect the destruction around Pudding Lane, which I'm just picturing burnt pudding. I mean, it started in a bakery. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... The lane was named for the bakery, I'm sure, because he makes puddings. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. It probably smelled good and then real bad. Right. Like, oh, it smells like baked bread. Oh, no. Oh, no, it smells like bacon. Oh, no. Uh, He goes, so he's not proud of that one. (laughs) He described the lamenting fire, quote, everybody endeavoring to remove their goods, flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off the poor people staying in their houses as long as, as long till long as till the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clamoring from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another, end quote. So people are just hoping it's not coming to them. And then it does. And they're and like, gosh, and then they have, they're pretty much gathering all their stuff together. So they're like, okay, if it gets here, we're ready. And at that point, you think you're so poor that like, you probably don't have that much. But yeah, like, you're not going to be able to rebuild. No. You can barely afford to keep up what was already there. And I mean, your job's probably burned. Yeah. All your clothes. Your three outfits. And maybe your children. Well, your children you could probably get rid of, get with you. Bring with you. I like your first option. (laughs) Just get rid of them. Three less miles to feed. Boom. That's fucking terrible. What am I saying? But then who's going to support you when you're old? Not going to be old. You die at 38. But you need your children to support you. What if you get sick? Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Peeps return, continued westward on the river to the court of Whitehall, quote, where people come about me and did get give them an account, dismayed them all, and the word was carried into the king. So I was called for and did tell the king and the Duke of York, a.k.a. his brother, mm-hmm. what I saw, and that unless his majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire. They seemed much troubled, and the king commanded me to go to my lord mayor from him and command him to spare no houses, but pull them down before the fire every way, end quote. So the king's like, oh, my capital is on fire. Right everything's burning. Right. And they're not pulling, they're not doing fire preventative measures. He goes, no, go tell the Lord Mayor he has to do fire preventative measures. Like, so, Charles's brother James, the Duke of York, offered to use the Royal Guard, 
lifeguards to help fight the fire. And we also get an account from the young schoolboy William Taswell, who had bolted from early morning services at Westminster Abbey. He saw refugees arrive in hired lighter boats near Westminster Stairs, a mile west of Pudding Lane, unclothed and covered only with blankets. So their clothes have burned off. It's Mm -hmm. that hot. And you have to think about the one saving grace, (laughs) my thought is, we don't have burning plastics. So just right. imagine it's not like toxic fumes in the air. It's just there's probably some toxic fumes because you know like they put tar in. Well, yeah, stuff like in, in the buildings. Mm-hmm. So the services of the lightermen had suddenly become extremely expensive, and only the luckiest refugees could secure a place. So the process. So it's it's like Uber raising the prices of yeah. Like when there was that shooting in Australia, and the Uber prices shot up. Of people trying to get out of the city. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. It was a few years ago. Um, surge pricing. That's what yeah. it is. So. <sighs> yeah. And this will not just be with riverboats, like, hiring it's, carts. It's everything. Yeah, anything that has wheels and can get you out. So, we reach reached the afternoon. This is still Sunday. They are having a day. Yeah. There's also now high wind. Of course there is. And many people have abandoned attempts to extinguishing the fire and just flee. There's mass humans moving everywhere. Their bundles and carts made lanes impassable for firemen and carriages. So then the people who are trying to fight the fire can't. Can't get through. Yeah. Because everyone's, it's like when you see people leaving for hurricanes, everyone's going in one right. direction. Right. But imagine if, you know, they still don't, like, you know, when they let them come up both lanes of the highway. Right. But imagine if they didn't leave a couple lanes for, like, for, like emergency services. Yeah. So it would be, like, all lanes of the highway going one way. Right. And, and you can't fight it. Yep. So, Peeps takes a, took a coach back into the city from Whitehall. <laughs> I love this asshole. <laughs> so much. <laughs> He's the one car heading into the hurricane. <laughs> He's got a report. <laughs> He's, He's got to tell the Lord Mayor to get his shit together. Yeah. Only, uh, reached only St. Paul's Cathedral before he had to get out and walk. Because people. Right. Pedestrians with handcarts and goods were still on the move away from the fire. They're heavily weighed down because they have everything. Because you're going to take your furniture too, because really, until probably more recent years, furniture has been a highly, like, prized thing because Mm -hmm. it was so expensive. It was a luxury good. No, it's still a luxury good, but you can buy a couch for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, this one was maybe 150 yeah so like you can obtain them easier so yeah so it's not quite such a big deal if you lose it in a fire yeah mattresses oh my god yeah not even great. more expensive to have a good one oh <laughs> so church parishes not directly threatened were filled up with furniture valuables which were soon had to be moved farther away right because it's spreading also a lot of these churches depending where they were were stone. So, stone churches. Yeah, a much better chance of surviving the fire. Mm-hmm. Peace found Bloodworth trying to coordinate firefighting efforts near to collapse. Quote, like a fainting woman, end quote. <laughs> so, he's not doing well. Okay. He's he's not the person you want handling a crisis. No. But he's in charge. Okay. Um, for better or worse. For better or worse. Crying, who you got. Crying out plaintively in response to the king's message that he was pulling down houses. Quote, but the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. End quote. So... He also refuses James' offer of soldiers and goes to sleep. <laughs> like, he goes to bed now. As London burns, he goes to take a nap. I want to judge him for that, but, like, I get it. He's so stressed out, he just needs to sleep. It's an anxiety nap. I did that. So, I did that a lot. Charles II sails down from Whitehall on the royal barge to inspect the scene, which I think is the funniest scene to imagine. Everything's on fire, and you're just in a royal barge like citizens. <laughs> Thank you for being here today. He probably wasn't. He probably was, like, you probably saw a lot of military men yeah, there, like, like, taking mm. stock, like, grim looking. But the dudes are still dressed really hella fancy. 
And yeah. there's like naked people because everything. It's a lot of colors and fur. Yeah. Yeah. The king was not pleased when he found out houses were still not being pulled down despite Bloodworth's um, assurances to peeps and overrode the authority of Bloodworth in order to wholesale doll demolition of a west, the West Fire Zone. Uh, basically, by the time they get put into order, the fire's already out of control in that area because they weren't, like, the people who knew what they were doing weren't given leave to just do their jobs. Right. You know? Yeah. By Sunday afternoon, 18 hours after the alarm was raised on Pudding Lane, the fire had become a raging firestorm that had created its own weather. Oh. So... Is it causing its own wind? It's so... Yeah, it's... Like, if you've seen pictures of, like, the California fires and stuff like that, it just starts affecting the weather because there's so much soot, so you're not getting sun. Gotcha. And then... Fire needs oxygen, so it's going to suck in the right. air. So it is creating wind. Okay. It's just really intense. Hmm. So, a tremendous rush. Probably loud, too. Oh, yeah. Deafening. Like deafening. The tremendous rush, uprush of hot air above the flames was driven pr- by the chimney effect, wherever uh, constrictions in the narrow air current, such as constricted spaces between jetty buildings and a vacuum left at ground level. So, like, thin spaces, be- like, right. alleys, roads. Right. Gaps in a house. Like, that's how, like, a lot of fires spread between buildings. Mm-hmm. I recently had a research property, and they had a fire in the garage. It took over the next garage and got into the house next door because the window was open. So the air oh, pulled it in because yeah, it was yeah. cool air. So it goes, whoop. Yeah, pulls the warm air right in, mm-hmm. and then the fire comes with it. Mm-hmm. They saved the house, right. but still. Yeah. But that was in the 1920s, so fire fighting was much better. Yeah. All right. So, not going well, and it's only day one. Oh, no. Uh... The strong inward winds tended did not tend to put the fire out as people thought, but instead supplied fresh oxygen to the flames, creating turbulence, uprush. So it's a continual cycle, mm-hmm. and it's creating um, an easterly direction of the gale. Peeps went down to the river with his wife and some friends to see the fire pull up and down and still increasing. They ordered the boatman to go, quote, so near to the fire we could smell the smoke and all over the Thames, with one's face in the wind, you were almost burned with a shower of fire drops, end quote. When these fire drops became unbearable, the party went to an alehouse on the south bank where they stayed till darkness and they could see the fire on the London Bridge across the river. Quote, as the, as only one arch, one entire arch of the fire made from this to the other side of the bridge and in a bow uh, up the hill for an arch above a mile long. It made me weep to see this. And, end quote, Peeps described the arch of the fire as, quote, a bow with God's arrow in it sh- with a shining point, end quote. So that's the end of Sunday. Okay. Day one. How do you feel? I mean, not great. I keep doing this to you. you and do. you keep coming back for it. I know. So, Monday, the fire expanding north and west, and the turbulence of the firestorm pushing the flames farther south and farther north than the day before. So... It's creating its own weather. There's sparks flying everywhere. And it just keeps spreading. It's like a hungry, hungry hippo for the city of London. <laughs> the spread to the river, um, the spread of the fire south was mainly halted by the river, but it had torched the houses on London Bridge and was threatening to cross the bridge and endanger the borough of Southwark on the south side of the bay. Southwark, which had preserved a pre-existing fire break, break on the bridge, so a long gap between the buildings, which was which had saved the south side of the Thames from the fire in 1632 and now did so again. Fight, flying embers started a fire in Southwark, but it quickly had stopped. So they put it out. They were like, nope, you shall not pass. <laughs> I imagine it was actually Ian McKellen there at the time, too. Like, he's an immortal. He hasn't. We hope so. Yeah. No. Headcanon accepted. So up to the north, uh, it has reached the financial heart of the city. Houses 
of the bankers on Lombard Street began to burn Monday afternoon, prompting a rush to get their stacks of gold coins to safety before they melted away. Because otherwise, the the currency is gone. You lose the wealth of the city and the nation. Yeah. So you're double fucked. Mm -hmm. Because even if you lose the wealth of the nation, at least you could maybe count on, like, private citizens helping you, like, as a loan. But if they don't have the money to do so, Mm. yeah. Could you just imagine in the embers just picking up gold, chunks of gold? And it melting your hand. Well, I'm assuming you wait. You aren't, you're not going to put a Viserys in S. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Okay. Several observers emphasize the despair and helplessness which seized Londoners the second day. A lack of efforts to save the wealthy, fashionable districts, which were now menaced by the flames, such as the Royal Exchange. Um, and you have the combined, which is the combined bourgeoisie shopping center. Or, sorry, the, like, purse and, like, the shopping center and mm. the opulent consumer shops of, in Cheapside. The Royal Exchange caught fire in the late afternoon and was a smoking shell within a few hours. John Everly, a courtier and diarist, wrote, quote, The conflagration was so universal and the people so astonished that from the beginning I know not was despondency or fate. They hardly stirred to quelch it so that there was nothing heard or seen but crying out and lamentation, running about like distracted creatures without all attempts to save their goods, save even their goods with such a strange consternation there was a, upon them, end quote. Basically, people are like, just try and save themselves at this point. Yeah. The fire is so out of control. Yeah. A lot of talking. Thank you. Um, Everly lived about four miles outside of the city in Deptford, so he did not see the early stage of the disaster. He went by coach to Southwark on Monday, joining many of the other upper class people to see the view, which he said the other day before, the, of the burning city across the river. Wow. Doesn't that just sound so bougie? You're just like, we're going to watch the peasants burn. Right? Mm. So. I wonder why they're a revolution. So, the conflagration was much larger now. The Quote, the whole city in dreadful flames near the waterside. All houses from the bridge, all of Thames Street, upwards, Cheapside, down to the Three Cranes, were now consumed, end quote. In the evening, Everly reported the si- River was covered with barges and boats, making their escape with piled goods. So people are hiring boats, they're hiring carts, anything to get their stuff out. Mm -hmm. There's also carts and pedestrians through the bottleneck city gates, making for the open fields to the north and east, which for many miles, uh, for which many miles were strewn with movable of all sorts and tents erected to shelter both people and what goods they could get away with. Oh, the miserable and calamitous spectacle, end quote. And now we're on day two and suspicions are a flying. About how the fire started? Mm-hmm. Okay. That it was not an accident. Well, I mean, in a bakery, you'd almost expect it to happen, but at midnight, that seems kind of strange, because, like, they probably wouldn't start the early morning bakering, early morning baking until, like, three or four. Yeah. At the earliest. You also have to think of who are the enemies at this time. Right. So, the swirling winds um, carried sparks and burning flakes long distances to lodge and thaf- thatch-roofed thatched roofs and in wooden gutters causing a seemingly unrelenting house fire that seemed to break out far from their source and giving fresh rumors that the the fre- fresh fires were being set on purpose so they think there's an arsonist plot okay. but really it's just the wind blowing flakes yeah it's like pieces of burning houses yeah. are flying because it's like thatched roofs right yeah and wood yeah Immediately, foreigners are suspected because of the current Anglo... Has to be the French. The, no, Second Anglo-Dutch War. Oh, uh, okay. So, William of Orange, then. Yes. Okay. Well, I think it's after William of Orange. We're in War Number 2. Mm. There could be another William of Orange. There's many. Yeah. Fear 
and suspicion hardened into, hardened into certainty on Monday with reports circulating of an imminent oh, invasion and oh, foreign undercover agents seen casting fireballs into houses or caught with hand grenades or matches. I'm just picturing wizards at this point throwing fireballs. I would enjoy and that. long flowing robes just going whew, against Sir Ian McKellen. Naturally, yes. Then there's a wave of I street I think fire. he became a sir. <laughs> there's a wave of street violence. Of course. William Taswell saw a mob loot the shop of a French painter and level it to the ground and watched it in horror as a blacksmith walked up to the Frenchman in the street and hit him over the head with an iron bar. As one does. There's waves of fear of terrorism that received an extra boost with the disruption of communications and news facilities as they were devoured by the fire. The General Letter Office in Threadneedle Street burned down early Monday morning, which had the post passed through for the entire country. So the head of post mm-hmm. office burns down. That's why you can't have just one. Yep. The London Gazette made... <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> the London Gazette managed to put out its Monday issue before the printer's premises went up in flames, which I'm just like, love the commitment. Gotta meet that deadline, man. Deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. People have to know. The whole nation depended upon these communications, and the void they left were filled up with rumors. So... Not great. Nope. There were also religious alarms renewed of renewed gunpowder pl- plots, you know? Mm-hmm. Which would be a fun topic to cover. Gunpowder, Patrice, and that plot. Oh yeah. Also, Kit Harrington's in that movie, or that TV Guy show. Fox. Yeah. So, suspicions rose to panic and collective paranoia on Monday, and I'm sure that died out. It's probably fine. We definitely still aren't like this. Both the train vans and the Coldstream guards focus on less on firefighting and more on rounding up foreigners, Catholics, and any odd-looking people, arresting them um, or rescuing them from mods, mobs, or both. It was clearly us. We did it. The Catholics. So, I don't know if I've discussed this before on here, probably, but just for a refresher, if you're new. Because of the Reformation in England, Catholicism is a very touchy topic. Mm-hmm. Catholics did not have the right to hold office or vote until um, the 19th century. And I can't remember exactly when, and I apologize. It's been a minute. Um, And even then, they were still treated very much with suspicion. They have filled this void, I think. Well, and it was, we insert to the Pope in Rome Mm -hmm. before, and a lot of people, even like when JFK was running for president, it was, he's going to govern at the whim of Rome and not what's best for the people. So like, they assumed that the Vatican was going to have a much bigger role in government than they thought it should. And I mean, and to an extent, they're not wrong, but. At this period, yes. Yeah. There had also been some shady shit happening with... In the Catholic Church? In the Catholic Church. What? We don't do that. I mean, at one point you had three popes, they all were excommunicating each other, and then everyone went away, oh. and then they're fighting, and oh, it's a great time. The anti-pope at Auvignon. I love it. The Ebenezer papacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a great so time. So good. Nice palace, though. Beautiful. Mm. They built it. Mm-hmm. And on top of, like, there, so there's a lot of resentment, and it's the reason why Charles the first got his head disappeared. Yeah. A little bit was because of the Catholicism and he wanted to be like other Catholic kings. Well, it didn't help that Mary Tudor, like, was real Catholic and executed a whole bunch of people who were not. Well, I mean, her mom was the super Catholic. And, yeah. And her great her grandparents were, were the superest. Right. They're literally known as the Reyes Catholicos, so yeah. the Catholic the Catholic kings. kings. Catholic royals, yeah. So, well, you have to figure also Catherine the- of Aragon's nephew was the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of reason. There's a whole lot of nepotism going on there. I mean, the Habsburg job, one thing. <sighs> yeah. 
But so you can understand why the fear of Catholic plot. It comes up a lot. Yeah. Also, their main enemy is France, always. France and Spain. It just rotates. So, yeah. Fair. Well, uh, yeah. And the Jacobite uprisings Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And Ireland's super Catholic. Right. That's always my favorite when they're like, the French are going to land in Ireland and then invade. And I'm like, that seems like a roundabout way. Mm. But if they have the support of Irish Catholics and French Catholics, I can see why that's what they thought. Yeah. It just, yeah. So there's a much easier way to do it. You just meet in the UK. Yeah. England's (laughs) in the middle. You just meet there. England is in the middle of Ireland and France. But besides that, okay. So... Uh, the inhabitants of the city are really, really wanting to get their shit out of the city, especially the upper classes. So they begin hi- uh, providing a source of income to able-bodied poor, hiring them out as porters, sometimes literally, who would literally just steal their money, like the goods. They'd just be like, yeah, I'll carry this for this. Oh, sure. They do the Mickey Milkovich. Mm-hmm. So, and it was profitable for the owners of carts and boats. Hiring a cart head cost a couple shillings on Saturday before the fire. By Monday, it was 40 pounds. Or, in 2005 money, 4,000 pounds. Surge pricing. It's a bitch. Mm-hmm. Chaos at the gates had the magistrates ordering the gate shut on Monday afternoon, turning um, in hopes of turning the inhabitants of safeguarding their own possessions to fighting the fire. So they're basically like, fight the fire! And they're like, I want to get out. Like, but the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, quote, that... No hopes of saving anything left. They might uh, have more desperate endeavors to quenching the fire, end quote. This headlong, unsuccessful me- measure was rescinded the next day, so it did not work. <laughs> Monday marked the beginning of the organized action, even as order broke down in the streets, especially at the gates, and the fire is raged unchecked. Uh, Bloodworth had left the city, apparently. Okay. Because his name is not mentioned in any contemporaneous accounts of Monday's events. He was probably still taking that anxiety nap, man. You sleep yeah. real good when you do that. Just, Just out. All the wine. Out. In the state of the emergency, the king overrode the city's authorities and put his brother, James, the Duke of York, in charge of operations. He's like, no, we're saving the city. Pretty sure that went over like a lead balloon. Effective, but lead balloon. James set up command posts around the perimeter of the fire, press gangs, press ganging into teams of well-paid, well-fed firemen, any men of the lower classes found in the street. So he's like, we will feed you, we will pay you, but let's get this done. Aggressively was moving my hand. Yes. It kind of did not feel good. I liked it, though. You made your point. Nah. They cannot see it. <laughs> no, but I can. I'm the one that counts. <laughs> Three courtiers were put in charge of each post with authority from Charles himself to order demolition. So you can't argue. That's the top. Yeah. Can't get much higher than the king. No. God himself, maybe. Jesus. Jesus. The invisible gesture gesture of the solidarity from the crown was intended to cut through the citizens' misgivings about being held financially responsible for pulling down houses. James and his lifeguards rode up and down the streets all Monday, rescuing foreigners from the mobs and attempting to keep order. Quote, the Duke of York hath won the hearts of the people with his continual indefagable pains day and night in helping quench the fire, end quote. A witness wrote in the letter September 8th. On Monday evening, hopes were dashed for the math- that the massive stone walls of Bayard's castle, Blackfriars, would stay the course of the flames, the western counterpart of the Tower of London. The historic palace was cons- completely consumed, burning all night. Mm. All the documents, all mm. the things. And history. Sorry. 
It's like when you talk about the Library of Alexandria right, and it just hurts. Thinking. Contemporary ac- account. I don't know what I was trying to say there. Words, probably. A contemporary account said that Charles, King Charles, in person, worked manually day that day or later to help throw water on the flames to help the demolished win- buildings make a fire break. So even the king is like, there's rumors that the king was out there doing shit too. He wasn't just directing. He's like, um, we need to get this shit done. Tuesday. We're on September 4th. So we're on the third day. Okay. And on the third day. <laughs> and this is the day of greatest destruction. The Duke of York's command posts at Temple Bar, which is where the barristers are. Mm-hmm. The lawyers. Where the Strand meets Fleet Street was supposed to stop the fires westward advanced towards the Palace of Whitehall. So another important building. He hoped that the River Fleet would form a, nat- uh, a natural fire break, making a stand with his firemen on the Fleet Bridge and down to the Thames. However, on early Tuesday morning, the flames jumped over the fleet, outrank- outflanked them, and driven by unabated westerly gale, forcing them to run for it. <laughs> the consternation at the palace as the fire continually and plaguily westward, quote, oh, the confusion there was at that court, end quote, wrote Everly. So everyone is freaking out. Working to a planet last, James Firefighters had also created a large fire break to the north of the confl- conflagration. Oh, it's so dry. Also, it looks like there's a storm coming. It does. <sighs> so we got the plan. It contained, the fire break contained the fire until late afternoon when the flames reached across and began to destroy the wide affluent shopping street of Cheapside. Everyone had thought St. James Cathedral would be safe with its thick stone walls and natural fire break in the form of the surrounding plaza, but it had been crammed with rescued goods and its crypt filled tightly packed with stocks from printers and booksellers in the adjoining Pasternas Row. And the building is covered with a wooden scaffolding undergoing a piecemeal restoration by Christopher Redd, who is relatively unknown then. And we'll remember him. Okay. The scaffolding caught fire Tuesday night. Good. So, good, good. Leaving school, our friend young William Taswell stood on Westminster stairs a mile away, watched as the flames crept around the cathedral, burning the scaffolding and igniting the timber roof beams. Within half an hour, the lead roof was melting, and the books and the pr- crypts and the books and the paper in the crypt caught fire with a roar. <laughs> Quote: The stones of St. Paul's flew like grenadoes. The melting lead running down the streets like a stream and the very pavement glowing with fire redness, so as no horse nor man was able to tread on them, end quote, by Everly. So, by church, St. Paul's, with its heavy masonry, broke through its crypt, and everything's burned. During the day, the flames began to move eastward towards the neighborhood of Pudding Lane, straight towards, yeah, oh, wait, from Pudding Lane. So they're moving eastwards from Pudding Lane. So it's going out in all directions, minus south. And towards Peep's home on Seething Lane and the Tower of London with its gunpowder stores. Cool. The ter- the garrison at the tower took matters into their own hands. After waiting a day for the requested help from James's official firemen who were busy in the west, they created their own fire breaks by blowing up houses on a large scale in the vicinity, halting advance the advance of the fire. In a letter to William Coventry, William Peeps or wrote- er, Peeps wrote that he quote saw how horribly the sky looks all on fire a fire in the night. It was enough to put us out of our wits and indeed extremely dreadful for it looked it looks just as if it was at us and the whole heaven on fire, end quote. So that's Tuesday. We're okay. on day three. Day four. Okay. Yeah. This is a long fire. Wow. <laughs> you are not kidding. I told you this was the long one. Because of the damage and the attempt of fire breaks on Tuesday, the fire did not spread significantly on Wednesday. The wind also drops Tuesday evening, and the fire breaks created by the garrison begin to take effect on Wednesday. Um, stopping the fire caused much damage and demolition damage in the lawyer's area called Temple 
like the temple bar. So that's where all the lawyers are. Mm-hmm. And they had like a couple their bars because they had a couple different areas. Yeah. So. Peeps walked all, all over the smaller city, getting his feet hot and climbing the steeple of Barking's church from which he viewed the destroyed city. Quote, the saddest sight of desolation that I ever saw. End quote. So it's just the center of the city is ash. Gone. Yeah. There's no St. Paul Cathedral. Like, mm. It's burnt palaces. It's burnt prisons. It has God, the rebuilding must have cost a fortune. We'll get to that. Ooh. We're almost done with the fire. Okay. I promise. Okay. Okay. There were many separate fires still burning themselves out, but the great fire was over. The following Sunday, it rained all over the city, extinguishing the remaining fire. But it took until the following March before the embers stopped reigniting. Wow. Because it was so hot. That there were just small burning. Like six months. Mm-hmm. Oof. Peeps visited the Moorfields, visited Moorfields, a large public park immediately north of the city, and he saw a great encampment of hopeless refugees, quote, poor wretches carrying their goods there and everybody keeping his goods together and by themselves, end quote. Because you're trying to protect what is yours. Right. He also noted that the price of bread had doubled in the park. Mm. Everly also went out to Moorfield and was, because uh, it was turning to the main point of assembly for the homeless, and was horrified at the number of distressed people filling up, some under tents, some under makeshift te- uh, shacks. Quote, many were without a rag or necessary necessary utensils, better board, reduced to extreme misery and poverty, end quote. So, real talk, did they lynch the baker we'll for get starting to- this shit? Because... We'll get to it. So, that's a yes. Okay. But, <laughs> uh, Everly was impressed by the pride of the distressed Londoners, or, Londoners, quote, though ready to perish for hunger or destitution, yet not asking one penny of relief, end quote. Just let that sink in. Mm. He's proud that they're not asking for help. Uh, on top of that, fears were high, high among traumatized fire victims, fear of foreign arsonists, and of a French and Dutch invasion. So everything you own is gone, and you're afraid there's going to be an invasion, which at this point, they would have invaded, raped, and pillaged. Yeah. It's going to happen. There's then an outbreak of general panic Wednesday night in the encampments on Parliament Hill, Moorfield, and Islington. So you have like three basically refugee camps that have formed outside the city of London. Okay. A light in the sky over Fleet Street started a story that 50,000 French and Dutch immigrants had risen. Is that kidding? Yeah. Okay. Um, widely rumored to have started the fire and were marching towards Moorfield to finish off what the fire had begun to cut men's throat, rape the women, and steal their few possessions. Wow. Surging in the streets, a frightened mob fell upon any foreigner they could find and were appeased, according to Everly, quote, with the infinite pains and great difficulty, end quote, and pushed back to the fields by trains, train bands, troops of lifeguards, and members of the court. The mood was now so volatile that Charles was afraid of a full-scale London rebellion against the monarchy. So, because food production and distribution had basically been disrupted to point of non-existence, Charles announced that suppliers of bread would be um, supplies of bread would be brought into the city every day, and safe markets be set up around the perimeter. These markets were for buying and selling. There was no question of distributing emergency aid. So they're just going to bring it in, and make sure the food's there, okay, at a reasonable cost, but okay. you still have to buy it, right? Okay, well, I mean, I guess that makes sense, especially if they're not asking for help. Like, it was a point of shame, yeah, for so long, and it still is, and that's why you can see this culture of shame that has come around, like, like food stamps food, and yeah. like and all of that stuff. It's so inherent in our culture and our systems to not ask for help. Right. You you ask your family for help, but you don't ask the government for help. Yeah, and if you can't do that, you're screwed. Yeah. So aftermath of the fire, it burned for four days. Wow. Destroyed large chunks of the city, and I will post 
We just celebrated, I think, the 600th. We had a celebration of the anniversary of the Fire of London um, a couple of years ago. And they, mm-hmm. an artist on a barge built a reconstruction of the city at that point. Wow. And they burned it in the in the river. Yeah. And it's That's amazing crazy. to see. They did a live stream of it. Of course they did. <laughs> but it. there are really good interactive maps online and um, really just digital maps to show how much the fire spread each day, right? And when they weren't controlling it, it could have taken out so the whole city. Yeah. And if the king hadn't intervened when he did. Yeah. So hundreds of thousands of people were left homeless. 89 parish churches, the guild hall, numerous other public buildings, jails, markets... And 57 halls were just burnt out shells. Wow. The loss of property was estimated to be um, between 5 and 7 million at that time. Oh. Pounds. Um, King Charles gave firefighters a generous purse of 100 guineas to share between them, which wow. at that, that point was pretty good. That's Yeah, that's pretty decent. Not for the last time, a nation would honor its brave firefighters. So they're just like so grateful. That's good at least. Priorities. Mm-hmm. In the immediate aftermath of the fire, a poor, demented French watchmaker called Lucky Hubert confessed to starting the fire deliberately. Justice was swift, and he was rapidly hanged. However, like, they realized he couldn't have started it because he wasn't there at the time. Hmm. Uh, it did cleanse the city because um, they basically cleared out the city center that had been... Yeah, burned up all those plague germs. Yeah. Well, the city had been growing since the Romans had founded it, so it's been there for over a thousand almost two thousand years yeah the overcrowded and disease-ridden streets were destroyed and a new london emerged they erected a monument on putting lane the spot where the fire started and can be seen today i've seen it yeah 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 um to like be a reminder of those terrible days and actually not that many people died from the fire surprising given how long it went on but they had enough warning to mm-hmm. not I just think get themselves, but get their stuff. So it was in the tens, not the hundreds, which right. for that size of a city is amazing. amazing. Yeah. Um, wow. Sir Christopher Wren, remember I said he was coming back. And you did. Was given the task of rebuilding London and his masterpiece, St. Paul Cathe- Paul's Cathedral, which was started in 1675 and completed in 1711. So he's basically the reason the city of like the actual city, city of London looks the way it is with the organized streets. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so different from Paris. Right. Because Paris didn't have that level of fire. Right. The streets are still very narrow and all that. Yeah. And windy. Yeah. Yeah. So, in memory of Sir Christopher, there's an inscription on the cathedral which reads, quote, Si momentum requis conspiracy, end quote. And so the actual mean is, if you seek his monument, look round. Mm. He also rebuilt 52 city churches and his... Work turned the city of London into the city we know today. Some of the buildings did survive, but only a handful could be seen today. So, I mean, I would say it's, it's awesome to go look for them. But yeah, then that's the fire of London. I can't believe. So what do you think? I think we should have come up with fire departments a lot sooner than we did. But given what they had at the time, I think they did the best they could. I think after this, there are more like a push for more organized emergency or at least the bands that they had, like, you have to, like, if we hear it, you have to come. And if anyone around has to come. Yeah. But, I mean, we we don't see that level of organization really till the 18th century. Like, even, or the 19th century, even in, like, the U.S. Yeah. And all of that. It's just, we didn't have the mechanisms to right. do it. Right. If you think about it, the development 
of the radio, of sirens, of... The automobile. Automobile. Fire hydrant systems, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming in at the end of the 19th century. Right. And that I have read documents where they're putting in fire hydrants. And even then, until we get phones, you can't report. Right. You have to go to a central location to report it. Right. And tell them the address and... Yeah. Yeah. And now you can call from the address. Mm Mm-hmm. And the or like come. next door, yeah. yeah. So, or if you're Amish, you put a candle on a donkey. No, you, that, that was a, uh, my favorite murder reference. Oh, sorry, <laughs> it's okay. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you were looking at me like, wait, really? I wouldn't doubt it, man. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it, man. But I think <gasps> it's it's really interesting that some aspects of firefighting haven't changed. Right, like you will pull down a building, yeah, to save you to yeah. save lives and to save more. Yeah, and. As difficult as it is, like, fire breaks are really necessary and, you know, that's why you have insurance. These people didn't have insurance. Insurance? Yeah. Insurance really developed with um, modern shipping. Yeah. To Because ships were going down and they you don't really get insurance for property until later. Right. Like, because, you know, the sea is unpredictable, but land is more predictable. Right. So you don't... Yeah. Isn't that crazy to think about? A little bit, yeah. Just blew your mind so much today. Boom. Gone. Uh, I believe Bloodworth got put in prison. He w- did not have a nice fate, but they they realized it was an accident. Yeah. Cause in the monument, you really they really talk about that. Like, no, it was clearly an accident. Like, it wasn't sabotage. No. Yeah. No. And should you know you feel bad because that whole bakery they must like. I mean, I like I wonder what happened to the baker himself. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they don't specifically mention that mm-hmm. no, we hanged him too. Like. Yeah, I feel a little bit better about his chances. Well, his whole, his, everything he owned was gone immediately. Right, right. So, he was the first cat, like, the first one to lose everything. Yeah. So, maybe that was punishment enough. Yeah. Especially where it wasn't intentional. You know, you feel really bad just the perfect storm of shitty luck. Well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Courtney. For taunting your dreams once again. Eh, you know. It's what I'm good at. We'll catch you next week, devotees. And also collective. Yes. Bye. Bye. My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve from Great Lakes True Crime. We tell stories from Ohio and the rest of the lower Great Lakes region. Give us a listen on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime. to Domesticity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, As well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.